I want to give you just a little bit uh, about Baruch Hashem. You're meeting in here. Some of you may have no idea what Baruch Hashem is. And I just want to assure you that we are not a cult. And um, Oh, good, good. We have something in common. Thank you, Matthew. Baruch Hashem uh, was founded by my parents, as Matthew, uh, Pastor Matthew said, 33 years ago. And, and really the vision was this. Uh, my father had this vision that he desired to raise his children uh, as followers of Yeshua or Jesus and that they would be wholeheartedly devoted to him and that they would be raised in a contextually Jewish atmosphere, which is very important uh, for Jewish people. And finally that we would grow into a body that served as an example of a reconciled community of Jews and Gentiles together worshiping as one. We've hosted, you guys are now our third church to host in the last uh, less than a decade, I think it's been about seven years maybe, uh, to come and share the facility with us. And it's very interesting. I don't know how much you actually shared about this story, Matthew. I think I told you. I was praying one day, and I, um, I told the Lord, I said, I feel like at Baruch Hashem that we need to be stretched a little bit. Not necessarily the, the, all of the congregation, but especially the people who were in charge of various ministries and kind of what we would call the business of, maybe what you would call the business of church you know, worship leader, you know, this, the stuff that makes the, the service tick, that makes the, the community tick. And I really am not kidding you. God called my um, bluff. <laughs> Literally less than an hour later, I receive an email from Matthew saying, hey, we're doing some renovations on our facility. Would it be possible for us to come and stay at Baruch Hashem. And the, the irony is, when I, when I was praying this prayer, I wasn't talking about, oh, you know, we need less money or we need more people or we need more problems to stretch us. I really had in mind the, the idea of hosting a church at Baruch Hashem. And I went into my dad's office and I looked at him and I, I said, Dad, I don't know what I just did. I said, but I said, I was praying and I felt like the Lord said that, you know, I felt like we were supposed to host a church. I said, and now we have a request. I said, and it was only an hour ago. <laughs> so my dad, you know, said, let's, let's move forward with it. We'll talk it through and see what, see what can happen. But I'm sharing this to you, not to tell you that, you know, we're like the most hospitable Messianic synagogue in the, in the country or wherever. Um, but I'm sharing it with you because hospitality is a, um, is a virtue, uh, especially in Judaism and especially throughout the Old Testament, uh, and especially in the Torah, in the, first, in the five books of Moses. In fact, it's so important I'm trying to decide which example to give you. It's so important 
that Abraham uh, goes through the whole process of circumcising himself, and then within a few days, the angel of the Lord appears. Listen, you can imagine the guy is probably in pain. He's 90 years old, and he's in pain. No, he's not 90. He's 100. 99. He's, a, he's old. He's in pain, and all of a sudden he sees the angel of the Lord and two other angels appear, and what does he do? He jumps up, he welcomes, he says, let me go get a sheep, I will kill it for you, I want to have a feast. He doesn't, doesn't back down at all. And it's because the idea of hospitality, in America it's not exactly the same. In America we're, if you can put it culturally, we're a little bit more of a cold climate culture, as opposed to a warm climate culture where it's, which is very hospitable and, you know, it's very welcoming and cold climate cultures are like, you know, if I can, and I'm, I'm probably going to offend somebody and I'm really sorry, but if I can pick on one country, it's cold climate cultures are kind of like Germans. You know, they're very good at what they do. They're very methodical, precise, have great giftings, but you're not going to be like, hey, let me just crash in your house tonight. No, it's, uh, like, that's just, it's not that culture's gift. But in the Middle East, hospitality is one of those gifts that is, um, that is valued above many others. I was speaking with um, Pastor Matthew in this process and as I was preparing for today, asking about a few things, maybe what what would it be that I, I should share with you guys? I'm going to tell you, Matthew gave me a list that's probably 10 items that range from left to right, top to bottom. So if I seem a little disjointed, I'm just going to blame it on him. <laughs> By the way, is somebody keeping time? Because I have a tendency to go long, and, and it's definitely inherited. So, right, I have 30 minutes, is that right? Okay, I'll call it 30 minutes from now. Please feel free to get up and wave your hands and be like, your 30 minutes have passed. Pastor Matthew wanted me to talk a little bit, kind of uh, the importance of our communities dwelling together, if you will, in, in one a facility, and uh, maybe what this could mean for you and what it could mean for us. And in my mind, practically speaking, the reason you're here is because your facility is being renovated. I mean, that's the very simple surface reason of why you're at Baruch Hashem. Uh, I believe that there's more than that. Um, but if that's all you walk away with, it's, I, I will tell you that's okay, that's enough. But practically, I feel like you're here, and for your benefit and for our benefit, being in a place that's a little bit uncomfortable is the place where God often speaks to us the greatest. There's a story, it's one of my favorite stories, There's a story in 1 Kings. I'm not going to read it to you, don't worry. 
but I will narrate it to you. 1 Kings chapter 19. And it starts, let's just, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context here with chapter 18. Chapter 18 talks about where Elijah goes up on the mountain. You guys all know this story. Elijah goes up on the mountain. There's like hundreds of prophets of Baal. And I'm telling you, he has a a sense of humor. And in fact, many Jews are this way. It's very self-deprecating and sarcastic. He gets up there and and he says, prepare your sacrifices, call your gods. And they're doing it and, you know, they're cutting themselves and they're doing all this. And he says, what, they can't hear you? Did they go to the loo? Are they, in the, are they asleep? Do we need to wake them up? I mean, it, when you read it, it's, when you just read the words and kind of pass over the fact that there's some really deep sarcasm going on. He's just, he's just mocking them. And then he says, wait a second. So he puts his offering up there. He gets buckets of water. I mean, it's like Baptist baptisms versus Catholic baptisms. It's so, so many buckets. Buckets of water. Just totally drenches everything. And he says, at that moment, he calls down the fire of God. And it's consumed like that. I mean, you have to imagine, at this moment... Maybe some of you have had not necessarily moments like this, uh, but you've had those moments where you're like, wow, God just worked in my life. You know, I'm at, if you will, the top or the peak. And it's the very interesting thing is this story that I'm, I'm about to tell you comes right after that. Elijah has hit this peak of all of these prophets have just been proven wrong. And the God of Israel has been proven to be the God of all. And all of a sudden, some woman wants to kill him, and the dude flees for his life. I mean, you would think that he's at literally the peak of his um, experience with God. There wouldn't be any fear there. But all of a sudden, some woman wants, well, not some, let's be honest, she was the queen, uh, wants to kill him. And that dude takes off running. And I was reading this story either last night or this morning, I can't remember. And it says that he ran from Mount Carmel to Beersheba, which if you've never been to Israel, it means absolutely nothing, right? You could run from, uh, from here to Coit and Beltline, and you would think it was the same distance. But because my wife and I just literally were in Israel for two months, I all of a sudden realized what it meant, because we drove that. And it took us two and a half hours driving. It's 115 miles that he takes off. He goes to Beersheba, and then... He meets an angel, and and the angel gives him food, and then he goes to Mount Horeb, 
to Mount Sinai, which depends upon where it's located, is a lot farther. So, I mean, this dude is really scared. I mean, he just ran from here to Austin and is probably now going to Brownsville. <laughs> well, maybe not that far. Israel is not as big as Texas, let's be honest. Yeah. It's not that big. <laughs> but we're talking, a long, we're talking a, long, a long distance, Let me so you can wrap your brain around it. It's 115 miles, just the first leg of that. And then the second leg, he did without eating. It said that he didn't have anything again for 40 days. He ran for 40 days. Or traveled for 40 days, whether he ran, walked, or listen, if he's like me, by the end, he's just like doing his best to crawl if he hasn't eaten. I'm that way after like 40 minutes. But he's there now, and he's on Mount Sinai. First of all, I've heard this story so many times, and it wasn't until I was preparing for this message that I realized he was on Mount Sinai. I mean, Mount Sinai is like the most famous mountain in Judaism. I mean, God has met with his people there over and over and over again. Why wouldn't Elijah go there? Of course. So he's there and he's expecting to hear from God. Listen, we've all been in these places where we expect to hear from God. God has spoken to me before like this or like this. If I just do this, God speaks to me. You can imagine Elijah tries to hear God in this great mighty wind. I'm I'm betting that he probably had already heard God in a great mighty wind. And so now he's listening again. He doesn't hear God. Then he listens for him in a mighty earthquake. And he doesn't hear him. And then he listens for him in fire. He just got done with an episode of fire when God spoke to him. Like, he's like, oh, surely God's going to speak to me this time. And he doesn't hear God. And it's not until he quiet, quiets, quiets himself, makes himself quiet. It's not until there's some quiet surrounding him that all of a sudden he can be still and then he can just hear this very soft voice. He hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him very quietly, soft. Maybe it's a new way. Maybe he's never heard the Lord like this before. The reason I give you that example is because we have a need in our lives for quiet. It's just the way God built us. Uh, You know, it's not good, it's not bad. Some of us are extroverts and some of us are introverts. Introverts maybe require this much quiet and extroverts maybe require this much quiet. But all of us require a little bit. But I gave a message about a week ago, and I used this example. This is a really, you know what? I'm going to use your order of service as as my example. Some of you are old enough, many of you are not, to remember when books had margins greater than this. Um, You know, margins were more something like this. There was lots of empty space in the book. 
And when you think about it, a margin really doesn't do anything for the book. Because you're really looking to read the words, right? You want to know what the story is that's being communicated. But if you take away the margins and you take away the space, it becomes unintelligible. You can't read it. You can't read the story that's being communicated. Our lives are the same way. If you take away our margin, if you take away our space, our quietness, our silence, if you will, we almost become unintelligible. It's important to have those moments, those rhythms of quietness, of silence, of space. So why am I the person to, to talk to you about rhythms of quiet and silence? It's because God gave us something so long ago, and in fact, he made it a commandment for Jewish people, that every week we have a Shabbat, a day of, if you will, space, a day when we're not supposed to work, we're not supposed to labor. We just come and we sit with him. We dwell with him. It happens in creation. You find it in creation. But it doesn't become a commandment until he speaks to the Jewish people. It doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It just means it's not a commandment until he speaks to the Jewish people. What does this have to do with you? With storehouse. Sometimes we just need a little bit of external advice in our own lives. Personally, corporately. You may not know this, and I'm not telling you you should change at all. In fact, I don't think you should change. But the Shabbat is not today. In fact, today is the first day of work. I got an email this morning from a, uh, a man I'm communicating with in Israel. And he says, I'm sorry I didn't check my email. I emailed him on Friday. He said, I'm sorry I didn't check my email. Uh, we don't work Friday and Saturday. But now it's my first day of work, and so I'm responding to your email. And it's funny, I've only been back for three weeks, but it has already lapsed from me. Because when we were there, it's very... Here in the United States, listen... If you're over the age of about 30, you kind of remember the days when there wasn't much open on Sundays. But now it's just Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Which, I'm just going to tell you, if you're ever looking for a reason to move your service to Saturday, it's because Chick-fil-A is open. And you can have Chick-fil-A before and after service. It's a gift from God. I love, if you don't know, I love Chick-fil-A. But America doesn't really have a rhythm like that. In fact, our rhythm is a little bit more like New York City. It always goes. There's no stop. doesn't matter what time of day you're in New York City. There are always people out. When I was in Israel, we were staying in a town um, just north of Gaza. And... Um, it's a, it's a town that's 
relatively religious, um, observant religious. You know, they don't do anything on Shabbat. And at noon, sometimes 2 o'clock on Friday, everything shuts down. And it doesn't open up until 8, 9 o'clock on Saturday night, if it opens on Saturday night. And literally, it's quiet. There's no cars on the road. It's, it's something that we're not used to here in America, unless you live in the country. And then it's just quiet all the time. But you, there's this massive preparation, and it would happen every week. I would look at my wife and I would say, what are we doing for dinner tonight? And she'd go, oh no, we gotta go grocery shopping. It's 2.55 on Friday afternoon and we have five minutes to get to the grocery store before it closes. Every time. But in the stores are packed. But then it's like this frenzy and then everything stops. And it's like you can breathe. And it's actually really restorative to your soul when you have those periods of silence, the periods of rest, the periods where you can just sit and listen. I woke up, I would wake up every Saturday morning and it was just so peaceful, except for my kids. Um, but there was no sound, no cars driving. My oldest daughter and I, we would drive down to the beach every morning. I, would, I may have been the only car on the road at that time the only one I would see. By the time we would leave, there would be some, a few more. But it's just amazing what happens when you have a weekly rhythm of quiet and rest. So if you can learn anything while you're here at Baruch Hashem, maybe you can learn the principle of taking rest on a regular pattern. It doesn't have to be Saturday. It doesn't have to be Sunday, uh, in my opinion. Now, you can hear people who tell you it has to be from this time to this time on this day. I believe that you can worship God and be with him on any day that ends in the word day. I know I'm, it sounds like I'm being a little facetious, but really you can. Like He's always here. He just wants you to focus on him and take some time. Okay, I still have 30 minutes, right, Matthew? I'm just, pl- I'm just playing. That's one thing that I want you to take away. Thing two. If, you know, what a, a typical message has point three points. A typical Jewish message has like three points, 12 sub points, and... 45 sub-sub points. And how many? And the appendices, that's right. Not just one. What does this have to do with you, you know, the relationship with Israel, with Jewish people? I know Pastor Matthew taught you a, uh, at least one message, I think you did a series, on uh, Romans 9 through 11 a couple months ago, maybe. I just want to give you a couple thoughts. Um, a little bit on Romans 9, Romans 11, uh, and a little bit on some other stuff, but really, my thoughts are on this, the concept of Jew and Gentile 
dwelling together in a symbiotic relationship. What is symbiotic? Um, a relationship of mutual benefit. Where you do one thing, it benefits me. I do one thing, it benefits you. If I don't do the beneficial thing, it actually becomes negative for you, which then becomes negative for me, which then becomes negative for you, and you can see the cycle changes. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. You're welcome to flip there if you want, but you can trust my Bible, I think, if you don't want to flip. If I can get there. Romans chapter 11, verse 13 says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. This is a rabbi. I'm just going to preface this with this. This is a rabbi who's speaking to a Gentile congregation. Uh, and if you don't, I'm assuming Matthew probably went through the history. Romans is written um, after a time when the Jews were um, expelled from Rome. And at that, in, this, in this process of the growth of the body of Messiah, Jews were always in leadership. Like, the congregations were headed by Jews. Whether it was predominantly Gentile or predominantly Jewish, that was the way it was. When the Jews were expelled from Rome, it created a vacancy in the leadership. And they were gone for, uh, I think it was like five or ten years. Somebody can correct me if you want. Uh, it, was, it was enough time that the new leadership that rose into place uh, was not necessarily following the call of God um, in relation with the Jewish people. And so he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I spotlight my ministry or I um, highlight my ministry, or what's the other word I'm looking for? I magnify my ministry. That's the one I'm really, I want to use magnify for a reason. He magnifies his ministry by what? You can go back and read that whenever Paul goes into a new town, can anybody tell me where he goes first? To the synagogues. He magnifies his ministry if somehow, this is in verse 14, I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. So let me, let me break it down for you. Paul is saying, if he can provoke some of Israel, some of the Jewish people, to jealousy, to turn to their own God, that he's magnifying his ministry to the Gentiles. Now you can look at me and say, that makes absolutely no sense. Because if he, if, if I can put it in terms, I, I don't use these terms often, but because you're a church, I, you'll know what terms I'm talking about. If he saves a Jewish person, how does that magnify Gentiles? He's not saving a Gentile. He's saving a Jew. But he understands that there's relationship, that there's this symbiotic relationship between Jews and Gentiles. He understands this because he knows that there's this scripture. Hang on. 
And this scripture in Zechariah says this. It says that in those days, ten Gentiles will grab onto the coat or to the fringe or to the um, tips of the coats. It depends on what your translation says. Of one Jew to come up and worship the Lord in Zechariah 8.23. You can look it up if you, um, if you doubt me. Which I would say, let me, I say that jestingly. I would, if I were you, I would doubt everything that I possibly hear from anybody and research it yourself. Because if nothing else, you're going to gain a lot of knowledge by researching it yourself. That's the minimum that you're going to get. The maximum in the maximum is that God is actually going to meet you and develop this relationship that's way beyond what happens when you don't research yourself. When you take just somebody at their word for it. Now, I'm not telling you to question all leadership and to rebel against leadership. I am telling you, go double check the facts. In fact, my dad was telling me a story. I'm told this is totally a little tangent. My dad was telling me a story couple months ago about um, this friend of his who would get up and would just spout facts. And um, very well educated person. And sometimes I have this tendency. So I, I took this story to heart. This man got up and said something like, you know, 50% of America today has a problem with this or something. You know, gave a, a quote like that. And I'm telling you, this is the benefit of millennials. Every millennial in there got on their phone and Googled it and had the correct answer within about 30 seconds. And so my dad told the person, he said, listen, you're going to have to start making sure your facts are correct before you get up and say them. That's totally just a piece of advice. Half this room is Googling everything I say. Um... Magnify, magnify my own ministry. Uh, ten people. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, I, I get off a track and I have to like walk back through in my mind. Ten people will grab onto the coat of one Jew to come up and worship the Lord. Zechariah 8.23. In very simple mathematical terms, that just means this. If one Jew is saved... There's at least 10 Gentiles that will become saved to equal that. When you begin to think about that, that now, I, I, now you maybe can understand some priority when he says go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's not because Jews are worth more than Gentiles. It's not because Jews are uh, the chosen people of God and they're greater and more special and more important than Gentiles. It's because there is a protocol in place and that when you break barriers in one region it plows ground in a lot of regions I had a friend who he told me this about 10 years ago and he said listen he goes I go to a weekly meeting with some pastors he goes I tell them if they'll pray for the one Jew for me I'll pray for the 10 for them and I'm just going to go out on a little, on a little, um, a little limb here because my dad doesn't necessarily agree with me. 
But the scripture, when it says, I'll grab the ten Gentiles grab onto the fringe, or it actually says ten, um, ten men from every tongue from the tribes of the world. When you do the math, there's uh, in Genesis, there are 70 nations. So if you do the math, 70 times 10 makes 700. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say we'll grab the corner. It doesn't say we'll grab the coat. It says we'll grab the corner. And it uses this particular word called tzitzit. Um, and there's four. Because if you have a, cor- if you have a, a, cl- a clothing item, um, they were four-cornered, if that makes sense. They were rectangular. So if you do 700 times four, you end up with 2,800. And I'm not telling you this. I'm kind of going out on a limb by saying even this. But it could be that the ratio is not 1 to 10, but 1 to 2,800. Because of the math involved. Listen, I, I, I used to love math when I was growing up. And so mathematical things like trigger my mind. And I'm like, wait a second, what is happening here? And the reason I, be, I began to think that is because if you look at the Jewish population of the world today, it's not one-tenth of the, or one-eleventh of the population. It's physically impossible. And I have this firm belief that in that day, every nation, tongue, and tribe will acknowledge the Yeshua that Jesus is Lord, will bend the knee and will bow. If I believe that, then somewhere the ratios have to add up. Now, you could say that, it, that the Jewish people in the world today are pretty close to one twenty-eight hundredth of the population of the world. It's close. But when you begin to think about the implications of the way God honors structure, protocol, and everything, there's a reason we're working together. Because I will tell you something. As a Jewish person, I have very little sway with opening the eyes of Jewish people. Now, once Jewish people understand who Yeshua is, then they might come to me and be like, okay, let me figure out how, how this is actually supposed to work. But they don't get jealous because of me. In fact, Jewish people get angry because of me. Jewish people get jealous because of you. In fact, I was in Israel one year. I'm, if you haven't figured it out yet, I love telling stories. I was in Israel one year and we were doing outreach. And uh, one of my really good friends was with me, and uh, he's still here with me today. But we're on the outskirts of, of this um, music and dancing type kind of outreach. And one of the shopkeepers calls us over and says, what are you guys doing here? This was in 2006. It was at the, uh, I mean, the Intifada in Israel was... Uh, very high, and tourism was the lowest it's ever been. And tourism is the number one business industry of Israel. So everybody in Israel was hurting economically. He pulls us over and he says, what is this? What is, what's going on? And my friend Casey looks at him and says, listen, 
First of all, the guy says, what is this and who are you? And Casey says, listen, I decided I probably should not say anything. Casey looks at him and says, you know what? I'm a Gentile and I love the God of Israel. And because I love the God of Israel, I want to come and show my support to you. By coming, by shopping here, by doing, by giving you some economic blessing. I mean, he didn't say it like that. That's just, that's the way I say it today. Because of that, I believe that that man, I, I don't know what happened after that. Because of that, though, I think that maybe he was moved to consider what was actually being said. Let me tell you another story. Oh, man, is my time really up? All right, I'm, I'm finishing, I promise. I'm going to tell you one, uh, this story because this, this story is even more impactful. I was at a conference with, a, with an Israeli friend of mine and an Arab Christian brother, both from Israel. And um, they were in L.A. and they were flying to New York. They missed their plane. And they ended up having to catch the plane the next day. They get on the plane. They sit in the chair. And it's Israeli, Israeli Jewish guy, Israeli Arab, Orthodox Jew. And the Arab guy looks at the Orthodox Jewish guy and says, you know what, I love the Jewish people. I love the God of Israel. Can I tell you what he's done for me? And proceeds to take the flight from L.A. to New York to tell him about Yeshua. And at the end of this conversation, he says, listen, I can't really help you with questions on how, what this actually means to you, but I have an Israeli Jewish friend right here who can talk to you. And they had a conversation. They get off the plane they get into a cab in New York City, and it's a Palestinian driver. And the Israeli Jewish guy says, listen, I want you to know that God loves you. That God cares for the Palestinians. That he loves you really a lot. And by the way, I'm an Israeli. I'm Jewish. And he goes, and if you have questions, you can talk to my Arab brother here. This is the symbiotic relationship that we have. I, it's very difficult for Jews to open up their ears to me, but they will open them to you. Why? Because you love Israel. Listen, when, when you, uh, I'm about to get kind of political, but when you boycott, divest, and sanction yourself away from the Jewish people, you lose every hope of witnessing to them. And if you lose every hope of witnessing to them, they lose hope of eternal salvation. It's as simple as that. Sometimes, whether or not you believe that Israel should occupy lands or should not occupy lands, that's not what I'm debating. Uh, and if we want to debate that, you can talk to me later. <laughs> whether or not that's your belief, when you cut funding from someone, it automatically hardens their heart and you lose every chance of witness. You lose every chance of love that you could possibly show. Listen, when, uh, when the apostles walk up to the temple and the blind man is there, or the lame man is there, I'm confusing stories right now. He's there and he says, listen, I need, I need some money. And they said, sorry, we don't have any money. 
but be healed. And he gets up. But it's only because they stopped and they cared enough to invest in his life. And they only cared enough. He only really knew they cared because they spent time with him. Don't miss your opportunity to provoke Israel. Because if Israel's transgression meant riches for the nations, it's the next verse, then what will their salvation be but life from the dead? Resurrection beyond anything that we've ever witnessed before. You think about it, the last 2,000 years has been a time predominantly um, based or focused on Gentile salvations. And I'm, not, I'm just going to tell you, professing-wise, a third of the world professes to be a follower of Jesus. If you count the Catholic Church and you count all the churches together, a third of the world counts that. Can you just imagine what it would be if Israel professed? All the nations in the world would get it. I'm trying to touch something in you to call forth a destiny in you as a Gentile body. Something that I don't have the ability to do. I have the ability to come and share with you. Listen, Jews are supposed to be a light to the nations, to go out and teach and share. There's callings in certain people, in certain uh, people groups. You have a calling, according to Paul, to provoke my people to jealousy. When my people are provoked to jealousy, it then brings more of us to come and share more testimonies with you, which then causes more of you to provoke more of us to jealousy, which then causes, well, you can see what I'm doing here. It just gets bigger. It's crazy how that happens. But that's actually, that's what I want to end with. Um, because that's the most important thing. You can talk about what do you have to do as a Gentile? What do you have to do as a Jewish person? I, I don't really want to focus on that. Um, the only thing I think that you have to do is, oh, man, I can't say that. I think it is critically important for you as a Gentile body to love the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to a point that they begin to question. We heard the word during the worship service this morning. That they begin, the world begins to question, or the Jewish people begin to question, what the heck is going on here? Why do they love my God? What am I missing? When I was in Jerusalem, about a month ago, um, I witnessed something shameful. I'm not going to tell you what it was, um, but I can tell you it was something shameful from my people. It was not loving at all. And I looked at the actions that were being done, and I thought to myself, no wonder the world doesn't like us. 
What the heck are we doing? We have to show love to one another. That's the only way to get people to go, wait a second, am I doing something wrong? We don't get convicted by being told, you're doing it wrong. Let me scream at you a little bit more. You're doing it wrong. That doesn't convict. In fact, you know what? The rebellious side of me says, don't talk to me anymore. I'm leaving. (laughs) But when you begin to act in love, all of a sudden it breaks down that barrier. And then we can begin to see the harvest that each of us actually wants. The harvest that changes the entire world. Listen, our nation saw a harvest, it seems like a long, long time ago, decades, hundreds of years ago, saw a great harvest. But can I tell you, that isn't even a sample of what's to come. A sample. It's up to us. You, me, Jewish people, Gentiles, It's up to us to learn from one another, to work together, to love one another, and to show the world, to let the world see who our God is through us, through our actions. Thank you so much for having me. Matthew just told me I can talk for another hour. (laughs) Honestly, I got to tell you, there's lots of stuff that I would love to to share with you about different scriptures. Um, But this was kind of the stuff that was on my heart today. Matthew asked me to close the service. Close the service? Is that what I'm doing? Yeah, okay. Closing the service. This is what, at Brook Hashem, the reason I have to ask is this is what we do at Brook Hashem. We close the service. Uh, many of you know the ironic, I think it's called the ironic benediction in English. Uh, the, not the ironic, yeah, definitely ironic. Um, it's, it's the ironic blessing, the birkata koanim, the blessing of the priests. And it comes from Numbers chapter 6. And this, this blessing is a blessing that... Um, It honors God, and it draws his blessing to you as a people. Uh, You can believe in in formulas and stuff all you want. I actually don't believe that you can manipulate God. But God himself told Aaron to to bless the children of Israel by saying this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Adonai, turn his face. The Lord, turn his face toward you and grant you peace. You can stand if you want. Adonai, 
Veishmarecha Yaher Adonai Panovlecha Vichuneka Yisarunai Panovlecha Veasem Lecha Shalom. In the name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen.